Good morning. Happy Easter to you. Welcome to Grace Point Virtual Church. I hope you all have your best pajamas on this morning as you watch church from home. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please open up to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. We're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, If you're you're visiting us, I know that in all of the hiccups and inconveniences of the world today that we're living in, um, one of the neat things is uh, many have been able to visit churches that they don't normally go to, or maybe you're visiting church for the first time, never having been to church or not going very often. Um, so we have been working through the Gospel of Mark, and I, I chose this text as I was laying out Mark, and I see that the passage does fit uh, with Easter. And so we're continuing our study uh, through Mark, and it just aligns with Easter. And so it is Easter morning. We say, he is risen. And 12 years ago when I came to Grace Point Church, I learned the response was, he is risen indeed. I did not grow up in the church. I didn't know that this was customary of churches to do. And so uh, we can just give it a whirl. So I will say, he is risen, and you respond, he is risen indeed. So he is risen. Come on, kids, you can do better than that. Uh, make your make your parents plug their ears. You can scream it out. So let's try it one more time. He is risen. All right, so I'm with the parents, and I'm regretting that I did that just now because my ears will hurt, and the kids are going to be all rambunctious. But uh, this is a, a day that we celebrate and, and, and rejoice in. Really, every Sunday we celebrate the risen Christ in every day of our lives. Uh, for those who have uh, placed our faith in him. And so with that, let's pray, and then we'll read our passage. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the study of Mark as we have uh, been working our way through uh, this gospel for many months now. And Lord, we come to this passage, this section where Jesus is in the temple, uh, days from his arrest, days from his crucifixion, days from his resurrection, and he is confronted in the temple today by these Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection at all. And so, Lord, we pray that as they confront Jesus about the resurrection, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand what is being said in this passage, and, Lord, may we learn from Jesus' response concerning the resurrection, and ultimately, may we Come to know Jesus as our Savior if we don't already. And for those that know Jesus as their Savior, Lord, may we uh, rejoice in him and just celebrate what he has done uh, through the resurrection in our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 18. And there we read, Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, excuse me, his, let's start at verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no one, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brothers. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, 
and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children. And the third likewise, and so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that you would lead us now as we work our way through this passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. So the context of this passage, since really the the beginning of chapter 11, we've entered this new section in the Gospel of Mark. Time slows down immensely. Uh, The first 11 verses of, of Mark 11 is Palm Sunday, where he makes his triumphal entry. He makes his way to the temple. He basically looks around, determines that it was late, and then he makes his way. He, he calls it a day, and he heads back to Bethany. In verses 12 through 26, we see the, the parable of the fig tree sort of sandwiching uh, the story of the temple, where he walks in, he kicks over tables, he uh, kicks over chairs, he stops the commerce that's happened. He, he makes this huge scene within the temple. And there he confronts what they've turned the temple into. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. And they had turned it into a place of making money and taking advantage of people. Uh, The next morning, in the very end of chapter 11, beginning at verse 27, uh, this is really the day that we're in today. We, We see that Jesus... Uh, walks into the temple, and as he's walking into the temple, he's immediately met by the the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the the Sanhedrin, and they confront him with a question asking, uh, by what authority is he doing the things that he's doing? And he wants a simple question back. And there's sort of this, this, this back and forth between them. Jesus says, You know, I will answer your question if you can answer me one question. And he asked them the question about John the Baptist, and they refused to answer the question. Jesus immediately from that goes into this parable, this this story of this man who built a a vineyard and and, uh, vine growers, these men who leased the land from uh, the owner, uh, came and, and began to cultivate the land, and the owner sends all of these uh, servants of his, and they would beat them up and do all t- sorts of terrible things. It escalates all the way to where the owner sends his son, and they think this is the heir, let's kill him. And so by the end of this whole parable, uh, Jesus is clearly making his point that he is that son, and that all of the servants that came were the prophets of old who had come, and the leaders of Israel had abused and beaten and killed all of these other prophets like they would do to Jesus. And they are furious. They go away. They uh, 
they come up with their plan to, to arrest Jesus, uh, but they have two problems. The two problems, number one, is they're not allowed to ar- arrest and kill somebody on their own authority. Only Rome could execute somebody. Uh, the second problem is that uh, they had the population was for them. This great populace was excited and and thinking that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would come and he would overthrow Rome. And so what they did is they came up with this plan of uh, uh, with the the Pharisees and the Herodians that they joined forces and they they come together to ask Jesus a question. Th- these two these two groups hated each other, and so they asked Jesus a question about taxes. Uh, the 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 ending of that story last week was basically as they looked at the coin. Jesus says, "Render to Caesar what Caesar's. Give him the things that are his, but also render to God the things that are God's." And that is your life. That is my life. That the image of God has been stamped upon our life, and that God wants us uh, to surrender um, to surrender our life to Him. And so, from this first wave, or whatever number wave we're on. Immediately, we're introduced to a new group of people. Uh, This next group of people are the Sadducees, verse 18. We see some Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees haven't been mentioned yet in the Gospel of Mark, and this is really the the time that they're they're mentioned. So the first question is, who are the Sadducees? What do we know about them? Uh, The first thing we know about the Sadducees, although they left no writing about themselves, we gather from history and secondary sources uh, what we know about them. They, we know that they controlled the temple. Every, everything about the Sadducees is isolated and, and, and is around the temple. They didn't care about things that were um, outside of the temple. Um, they were the controlling party of the Sanhedrin. Uh, even though they were the minority amongst the people of Israel, they had the controlling power with within the Sanhedrin, this uh, this political party, the seventy plus the high priest uh, that that controlled everything that happened there, uh, they were extremely wealthy because they controlled the temple. They were making their pre- their proceeds and all of their money from the temple. They they had extreme power. Um, consequently, in AD seventy, when the tower was or the temple was destroyed. Um, they disappeared from history. That So as the temple fell, they fell, and they were never known from again. We know that they were an extremely self-sufficient people to the point of where they, they really didn't even need God. They were religious, but, but not very religious. Um, everything was based upon what they could do. Uh, they denied the supernatural. They denied angels. They, they, they really didn't believe in the afterlife. Um, they, uh, they, they were a nihilist, which means that they viewed life that when life ended, it was like a candle being snuffed, that it, it, you simply fade out of existence uh, into, into nothing. Um, they held exclusively to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And Josephus describes them. I found this funny. He, Josephus describes them as being virtually contentious with all people, that, that they just didn't get along with, with anyone. And, and what does Mark share about them? So we see some Sadducees, and then he, he puts in sort of parentheses for us to give us some background context about them in light of what is going to unfold. We learn 
that they say that there is no resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the afterlife. Um, this was something that the Pharisees believed in. And, and so the Pharisees held to the resurrection. This is an ongoing feud between th- these two groups. And so now they're entering the scene trying to trip up Jesus, trying to condemn Jesus, trying to uh, position Jesus in a way that causes some sort of uprising uh, within the temple grounds that would give sort of them grounds to take Jesus into custody. Uh, They are are looking for something. I I love uh, sort of skipping ahead in the story as this this scene of trying to get Jesus, if we we skip ahead to next week, By verse 28, we see one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that Jesus had answered them well. He kind of comes in with another angle. So as we move through this, the Sanhedrin cannot trip up Jesus. And and so they don't believe in the resurrection. Um, and, And this passage couldn't be more appropriate in light of Easter. We live in a day and age when the resurrection is challenged by so many. Um, I, for one, for many years of my life, didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in the supernatural. And so God, through uh, much evidence, has changed my point of view. And obviously, I stand here today sharing about the risen Christ. Um, But we come to this story with these Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, who they reflect much of the culture around us. And so they come to Jesus with this question about the resurrection, and, and they don't believe in the resurrection at all, period. We're not talking about Jesus' resurrection. We're, we're talking about biblical resurrection at any level. They don't believe in the supernatural. And so they came to Jesus, and they began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, they, they have a question. Well, a couple things to observe. This is coming from Deuteronomy. So this is coming from one of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, one of the books of the Bible that they, um, that they believe in, that they hold to. Um, they were very uh, literalist and... Um, conservative in the sense that they held to exactly what it said, where on the other end of the spectrum, the the Pharisees are conservative, but everything that the Bible says, they have a whole bunch of rules and sort of ideas connected to what the Scripture said. So they added a whole bunch of stuff uh, to the text. And so they come to Jesus dealing with a a passage in Deuteronomy 25, which we're not going to get into today. We're going to look at this, but I'm going to kind of gloss over it. You guys can... You guys can study it in more detail. But but they're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 25, dealing with the Leverite law. And so what this was, it was a way for Israel to preserve sort of the, uh, the inheritance, to, to keep things within the family. And that's what they reference. They say, you know what? Moses said this in Deuteronomy chapter 25. You can go there on your own time and you can read it on your own. Um, and there... What Moses writes is that if a man is married to a woman and then that man dies and that woman was never given a child, what's supposed to happen is the man's brother is supposed to then take the woman as his wife and there to have children. 
And the children that come from that relationship are basically uh, the, the brother who'd passed away, his children, and all of his assets and, and, and stuff should stick to those children. And so this is the setup for their question as we head over to verse 20. And as we go into verse 20 and tw- through 22, this is not an actual story. This is a story that they've, they've concocted in their minds, a scenario uh, for the purpose of trying to make Jesus look foolish, trying to win their argument that they have ongoing with the Pharisees. Um, this is their best stab at, at tripping up Jesus. And so what they say, not an actual story, this is a scenario. Verse 20, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife. And then he died, leaving no children. So the second one, the second brother, married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third, likewise. And so seven, and likewise, so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman dies. So they go through the whole list. Uh, I think of that, what is it, the uh, the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers or whatever, you know. Uh, but but so these seven, there's, there's one brother who marries this gal. He dies in number two, number three. And they all, they're just like dying. It's like, oh, stop marrying the girl, guys, because you're going to die. And at the end of the story, she dies also. Um, this huge, this this wacky scenario they present to then ask their question in verse 23. So now they've, they've quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 25. They've presented their story based on Deuteronomy 25. And now they're going to then ask their question to Jesus, trying to make him look like a fool and, and making fun of the Pharisees who hold to the resurrection. And so in verse 23, what we read is, in the resurrection, when they rise again, so they're referring to the people in the story, these eight individuals who have, who have all lived and died, and the one lady married all seven of these brothers. So they're saying, in the resurrection, which they don't believe again, they don't believe at all, and when they rise again, this is all foolish to the, the Sadducees, they don't believe in this, but they're presenting this scenario to Jesus, uh, trying to trip him up. They ask, which one's wife will she be? Okay, so when they all rise, they all were married to her. He said, for they all seven married her. Which, which, who will they, who will be the one that's married to her? Um, there's so much about this. I, I, I love how Jesus responds. He, he doesn't pull punches. Um, he engages with them. I probably wouldn't even engage with them, but Jesus goes forward and, and he says in verse in 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken? that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. I think right, right there, there's a, there's a lesson for us as we go through the scriptures. Um, it's, it's why at Grace Point Church, we take a book of the Bible at a time and we work through verse by verse by verse and allow the scriptures to, to teach us and to inform us and to, um, to, to trust them for leading us uh, through these times. Uh, in the last few weeks, um, this is the fifth Sunday that we haven't met in, in person, something that I could never have imagined that we would ever go through as a congregation. Um, and yet, as we've done virtual church, it's amazing to me 
how in the scriptures, in the text that were planned many months ago, how God was able to minister and to lead us through those texts through our present time. And so the, the Sadducees, they just didn't understand the scriptures. They had taken them and they were trying to use them for their own benefit. Uh, they didn't understand the power of God. And I do think that there's a lesson for us to spend time in the word, to allow God to speak to us, allow God to lead us. And for us to really recognize in the midst of this coronavirus, you know, I, I've talked about um, fear, how it, it, it's almost like a woman in labor and going through contractions. Like you can be doing fine for a couple of days and then all of a sudden you read something and it just plays into your thinking and then you just start worrying and it's like you're having a fear contraction. And so with this, don't lose sight of the scriptures. Don't lose sight of God. Don't lose sight of his power and his sovereignty in the midst of all of this. God certainly is doing good things during these extraordinary times. So he confronts them with their error. And then in verse 25, he's going to correct their understanding. And he says, for when they rise from the dead, so he doesn't deny that they're going to rise from the dead. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so he says there is an afterlife. All people will rise from the dead. Um, and he says essentially that there's no marriage in the afterlife. I, I don't have time to go down that rabbit trail from this text. Um, it's something that you can do on your own homework. In light of Easter, I'd like to stay focused on the concept of the resurrection, which Jesus expands upon in verse 26. And so in verse 26, we, we continue reading Jesus's response. And he says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, notice, he uses the word fact, the fact that the dead rise again. He doesn't tiptoe around and say, oh, you guys are just trying to trip up the Pharisees. You're trying to make me look foolish. There's no resurrection of the dead. He addresses it head on. He says, no, concerning the fact, let's talk about this resurrection. The fact that the dead rise again. This is a, a concept that's hard for us to imagine. Um, I don't put much weight at all into the books about the little kids who die and say they get whisked away to heaven and they come back with their stories. Uh, I just I, I don't put credibility into those stories. Um, I, I put my the credibility into scriptures, and the the Bible talks about the resurrection of of all of all peoples. Now, just like you, it's something that's hard to Im imagine. It's not something that we've ever experienced. For us, it's like when people die, they die. Um, but one thing I've, I've known and experienced about death, and I've seen a lot of death, and I've been around a lot of death, regardless of the circumstance, there's just something for, for all, all people that when we, when we experience death, it's, it's almost more than our, than our souls can handle. It's kind of like if you use a, a Windows, it's like the, the the blue screen of death when the computer seizes. It just doesn't work. I use a Mac, so I don't really get problems like that. No, I'm just kidding. I, we, we have our own issues, but we don't have the, the infamous blue screen of death. But there is something deep, deep within us that when we're faced with death, 
it, it, it's like it, it, it seizes our computer. It, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem like that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, in Ephesians, uh, not Ephesians, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, the, Solomon writes there that God has placed eternity in humanity's hearts. And I think that's because of the Bible, that, that we've been created for eternity, that we were never created to die. And that's a huge thesis of, of the scriptures, is that all of us, when you die, whether you know Christ or not, you continue into existence. The, the big question is, where will you be in eternity? Are you going to be with Christ, or are you going to be separated from him? And that's why today is so important, this day that we celebrate about the risen Christ, because that is the linchpin to everything. The resurrected Christ is the jugular vein of Christianity, and it's something that we each need to to wrestle with and to come to terms with. Now Jesus continues, and he says in the second part of verse 26, Have you not read in the book of Moses? Now notice Jesus isn't reading or referring to other passages, and there are many dealing with the resurrection beyond the first five books of the Bible. In the Old Testament, there, there are many references but he sticks to their terms. He sticks to the, the portion of Scripture that they agree about. And so he reasons from the words of Moses. And he says, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he didn't turn to uh, a particular, he didn't say, hey, turn your Bibles. You guys know in Exodus chapter 3, the first few verses there. They, they had scrolls and they had it committed to memory and they knew the story. And so he says, have you, have you guys not read in the book of Moses? You know, that the section about the burning bush, they said, oh, yeah, we know about that part. It, it's fascinating that after the story that Jesus references and then quotes the very next line in Exodus 3b, it says that then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God, that as he encountered God, he fell down in fear and repentance and just not knowing how to move forward. And then Jesus continues in verse 27. He says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And the question is, like, what's, how did Jesus get that from that? If we go back to the passage when he quotes, God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says in present tense, and as the story unfolds, I am the great I am, that that I am sent you, that I am the God of Abraham, meaning that although Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died many, many, many years prior to Moses having this encounter in the desert, God speaks in the present tense that he is the God of these patriarchs who were still in existence, just not on earth. And then Jesus says these words, you are greatly mistaken. Uh, this, this week, I almost keep, I, I keep misreading that phrase. I, I keep reading, you are gravely mistaken. For I can't imagine a more ter- more terrifying words to hear from Jesus than for him to say, you are terribly or greatly mistaken 
concerning the resurrection. Um, and they're just talking about the resurrection in general, but within days, it's debate. Is this Tuesday? Is this Wednesday? Regardless, days, um, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. And then on Sunday, today that we celebrate, it's a day that he rose from the dead. So within a week, Jesus is going to shake the whole world upside down. They're going to they're going to get all of their arguments in a way that finally they take Jesus into custody. They're going to nail him to the cross. The Romans were great executioners. Um, they think they've won. And then all of a sudden, he rises from the grave and shakes the whole world. Um, some, I almost want to say that he turned it upside down, but he probably turned the world right side up because through his death, he's brought life um, So the big question is, where are you concerning the resurrection of Jesus? Um, I'm not naive enough to think that there are many who are watching who don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, I'm a skeptical person by nature. Um, I've coined the word skeptimistic 20 years ago or so, or I'm I'm skeptical and I'm a pessimist, so why have two words? I'm skeptimistic. Um, Early in my Christian life, really before I was a Christian, so going back, I, I think it was probably about 1996, that I had my friend who who nagged me to go to church over and over and over again, and he wouldn't shut up about it. And finally, one day, I decided that I would I would go under certain conditions, and so I told told my buddy, hey, I'll go on a Tuesday night to a Bible study, um, but you have to promise me that you'll never go to you'll never invite me to go to church again. And he said, that's a deal. I'll, I'll, that sounds good. And as soon as he did that, I realized I bargained too low. And I quickly said, hey, I want to go in flip-flops and shorts and a T-shirt. And, and he looked at me and laughed. He said, the pastor's going to be barefoot. He's, a, he's an ex-pro surfer. And so he'll be barefoot in a T-shirt if he has a shirt on. <laughs> and it's like, oh, man. And so I started going to church. And I was skeptical. I would go just debating, debating, debating. Uh, finally... Over the course of many, many months of going to the Tuesday night Bible study, in hindsight, I realized my friend never asked me like questions because he, di- he didn't want to rattle the boat. He's like, I told you I would never ask you to go again, but you kept coming. And so I didn't want to ask you for, for shocking you from coming. But another friend had approached me, and he, he, you know, he says, hey, are you all right with Jesus? Like, are you and Jesus good? And I knew the right answer. I said, oh, yeah, we're tight. But that question about do you have a relationship with Christ? It's one of those questions that's just rattled around in the back of my mind over and over and over again. I couldn't sleep for, for I don't want to say I couldn't sleep for weeks, but over the course of weeks, I'd, I'd wake up and I'd be just wrestling with God over this relationship. That means that Jesus is still alive and that he's still active and living and, and that he can intervene in my life. And so through that, I, I eventually gave my life to Christ through that through probably a couple year window I don't exactly know when I gave my life to Christ but the one thing I want to say is that this whole idea of you know you can have a changed life this isn't a placebo this isn't like something that we've made up and I feel better in this life um, another great persecutor of the church was the apostle Paul and if you have your bibles or if you're just listening along uh, if you could go over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, 
And over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is a, a, a great chapter that the Apostle Paul, who was a great persecutor of the church, turned apostle, he writes concerning the resurrection of Christ. In verse 1, he writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which you are also saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. I want you to take note of verses 3 and 4. This, this is the gospel that is so referenced throughout the Easter story. Um, this is its definition. And it's important for you to understand for both the believer and the person who's auditing Christianity. Um, this is critical. It's of the utmost importance for you to under, understand. So the gospel is this. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. There's prophecy upon prophecy upon prophecy throughout the Old Testament speaking of this. In the Gospel of Mark leading up to this incident, he's told the apostles over and over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to hand me over. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise from the dead. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins, he rose from the dead, he conquered death. Now Paul, a skeptic, one who believed as a Pharisee in the resurrection, but he didn't believe necessarily that Jesus was the Messiah. From verses 5 down for, for a lot of these verses, I just don't want to turn my page just yet, but he's going to list all of these eyewitness accounts, those that during the time of his writing would testify that Jesus did indeed raise from the dead. Look what he says here in verse 5. And that he, that's Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, then to the twelve, the twelve apostles, and then after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So this is some 30 years after the resurrection, just off the top of my mind for when Corinthians was written. Paul says, as he writes this, he appeared to 500 brethren. Um, so at the time of writing, he says, most of these 500 guys are still alive. And Jesus appeared to them, and they will te give testimony. They will give their lives for this truth. Uh, all of these men that I've read so far, from Peter uh, to the apostles to the apostle Paul, they all gave their life sticking to the reality that they saw the risen Christ. This is a huge, this is a huge testimony, uh, huge evidence towards uh, supporting the resurrection of Christ. Then he says, Verse 7, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. I do want to pause. And if you're a believer today and you're feeling guilt and shame and remorse for the sin in your past, you think God can't use you. You think that you've made a mess of it. 
you need to read these words. They all apply to you. God's grace is sufficient for you. Your past is in the past. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross, your sin was nailed to the cross as well. You can move forward in grace. You're, you're free. You're cleansed. You're a new creature in Christ. Then in verse 11, we read, Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Belief is the key to salvation. Verse 12, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? This is the same argument that the, the, the Sadducees are making with Paul. I don't think I made the joke that all Christians use. They were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay, don't, don't, we can do that. Um, so, now, if Christ has preached as he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain also. So the deal is if Christ didn't raise from the dead, all of this is a waste of time. The, the, there's no, the, the placebo effect, if that's, the, the Bible doesn't reason from a placebo effect. That if, if this whole thing is a big joke and you feel better in this life, then that's great. No, the Bible's case is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, stop wasting your time in church, stop wasting time in the Bible, go live your life, and he who dies with the most toys wins. That's the world's view. And the Bible would say if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, that's exactly how you live. He goes on in verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And if we stop there, the skeptic would say, that's what I've been saying all along. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the reality that the Apostle Paul came to as the great persecutor of the church. This is the great reality I came to in my own life as a, as a, as a pagan Navy SEAL going about living my days um, however I wanted. I was confronted with the gospel of Christ as I began to study and to research and to investigate for, for the purpose of denying the resurrection. All I came to understand is that it, the evidence is there. As I travel to Israel and I look at the, the sites that are there, every, all archaeology points to the reality that Christ has risen from the dead. And so today we celebrate the risen Christ. Um, if you are watching now and you are unsure if you have a relationship with Christ, if you are unsure whether uh, you have security with him, I just want to quickly read a passage that helps lay out the mechanics of how you can be a Christian or you can assure yourself that you are indeed and have eternal security. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, 
we read, In him, that's Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that's what we talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Then he says, Having also believed, that is, uh, that's, that's the mechanism by which you move from death to life. Um, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I can't read this verse to end with a story. Um, Back in seminary, I had a friend that, man, he struggled with seminary. Most of us were there trying to get through as, as quickly as possible. And my friend had been in, had been in seminary for, year, I mean, maybe a decade. And he, I, I, I was there early in class, and I'm like, oh, hey, you're going to give it another run. He's like, yeah, this time I'm serious. Somebody from my church is, is funding it, and I'm ready to go. I even bought a MacBook, and I'm, a MacBook Pro. I'm ready, I'm ready to really be able to take notes and that sort of thing. And you know, he's this big old guy, and he's kind of hammering away at the keys. And I hear him moaning over there, and, and I'm like, what, what's up? And he's like, well, they told me that this computer had everything on it. And he said, it, it's supposed to have Microsoft on it, Microsoft Word. And I'm like, well, it, it may, but that's not a, a, a MacBook component. And, and so I'm like, well, let me have a look at your computer. And it turns out the information he got was correct, that, that Microsoft was indeed installed on in his computer. But what he was getting was... This product is on this computer, but if you want to activate it, you need to enter your credit card information so that you can pay for the right to use it. And, and so th- this is the deal with the Christian life. Like, the gospel is that Jesus died for you. It's, he, this offer is available to you, but you have to activate it in your life, and you do that through belief, saying, yes, Lord, I believe. And I, I, I believe before you do anything else, there's no prayer to pray. In that moment, in your heart when you believe, I believe that's the moment when you're saved. Hear the gospel, respond in belief, and you're sealed until the day of redemption. C.S. Lewis said it well. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so I encourage you all to consider the implications of the gospel today. My prayer is that as you enjoy this Easter morning and whatever traditions you and your family do, that you would have a blessed day today. But ultimately, it's about what Jesus has done for you and how you have responded to his gift. He is risen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we have to gather and to celebrate your resurrection. Father, we pray for every person who's listening that maybe doesn't know you, that you would connect the dots in their heart so that they would believe unto salvation. Father, for those of us who believe, we pray that we would mark this day today by rejoicing over your resurrection and the life that you have given us in Christ. We are grateful, Lord, for all that you've done in our lives, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.